Well, good morning. The accusations made about me are true. I am Alex Kochman. I will own that. Uh, but it's a pleasure to be with you here this morning. And um, as unfortunate as it is, the circumstances uh, with Benjamin um, and his surgery and everything that uh, has brought that about, uh, it's still just a pleasure to address all of you from God's word. And uh, just, I, I did have the pleasure of spending uh, several days this week with Scott Dunford, for those of you who know him. And uh, he and I were uh, in Tijuana together, uh, actually doing some uh, recruitment of missionaries and so some very cool things. And so continue to keep him in your prayers as well. And uh, for Neil and Tonya, too, I saw them here uh, somewhere this morning, too. They also serve uh, with ABWE um, in partnership. And so we're just grateful for the ministry that we have and also for Community Evangelical Free. Uh, but would you please turn with me now to Acts chapter 1. And we're going to be looking at the first 11 verses. Um, Benjamin introduced the series last week, and so we're going to read through these first 11 verses and dive in. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Father, we thank you for your word that you've given us this morning, that you have inspired, you've inscripturated, you've spoken and preserved for us. We pray that you would open our hearts to receive from you this morning. We pray that you would eliminate anything of me uh, that would come out in the message and that you would cause only your word and your truth to be remembered. We pray that you would convict us of sin where we ought to be convicted, where you would encourage us and strengthen us and embolden us where we need to be strengthened. And we pray that you would do your work in our midst this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I made mention of the fact that I was with Scott Dunford in Tijuana, Mexico, uh, this week, and he and I were doing some work with a uh, missionary training school that's based there, and it's an incredible thing, uh, because they're basically giving people who have already done, uh, many of them, uh, uh, either a term on the mission field before, or they've already done a Bible college or a seminary degree pursuing missions, but this is giving them sort of a missionary boot camp type of experience. It's giving them about 10 months of total immersion in another country, another culture. Now, granted, it's not that far, you know, across the border, um, but uh, a different language, different culture. Even if they're not going to be serving in a Spanish-speaking context, the idea 
is that they're getting practice going through culture shock, going through internet withdrawal, um, and some other things that can be trials for millennials. Uh, but, but what's neat about this is you see just the metal of these students. And I'm reminded of the fact that we as the church have a mission. And we're called to pursue that mission with boldness. And so I was excited as Benjamin shared with me the basis of this series, Unhindered, in the book of Acts. How the book of Acts finishes with Paul in house arrest, saying that he was proclaiming the kingdom with all boldness and without hindrance. And, and, and just thinking of what that means, that in the midst of all of the trial and the fact that he was on, on house arrest and still proclaiming the word of God with such boldness, how can we regain some of that? Yeah, I, I struggle to think, how would you explain to an unbeliever what this mission is? You know, I found myself on the plane next to individuals coming back, and you know, how, how do I explain what I do for a living? Right in terms of missionaries, in, in terms of, of this mission that we've all been given. The world would ask us this question, and this is what I want to answer this morning. The world would say, how dare you? How dare you come in with your religious preferences and say that that's the only way and actually call people to change from one way of living and thinking and believing and turn to another as if yours was the only true version? How dare you? How dare any of us do that? Sometimes we ask ourselves that question and we're discouraged because we don't always know how to answer. And when I was serving in ministry, uh, prior to coming to ABWE, I was working uh, largely with middle and high school students. Anything can happen when you get middle schoolers together. Am I right? (laughs) Amen? So we had a group of about uh, eight middle school boys together, uh, grades five and six, so barely middle school. And I remember it was close to Easter time, it was close to the time after that, and, and I asked some of them the question, what is Jesus doing right now? What do you think Jesus is doing right now? Where is Jesus right now? And there was some blank faces, there was some dull stares, which come with the territory. And one of them named Dylan, he says to me, um, well, b- before Dylan, there, there was a few other answers, you know, like, well, he's in our hearts He's in heaven, he's floating around, he's, he's always with us. And then this boy Dylan, he says, well, he's, he's watching over the dinosaurs. Um, I don't know what that means. Does, is he hanging out with the tooth fairy too? I mean, what, what category is this? Uh, that, that's kind of how many of us as believers answer that type of a question. Where is Jesus right now? What is he doing? There's this collective blank that we have over our consciousness as we think about what he's doing. You know, we understand 2,000 years ago, we went to the cross He rose from the dead, and we know he's returning someday. But everything in between, we just tend to blank out a little bit sometimes. We don't hold it in conscious memory what he's doing. Well, Acts 1 gives us the answer. It's the ascension of Jesus. And I truly believe that the ascension of Jesus is the answer to that question, how dare you? The ascension of Jesus is the source of our authority on mission. And that's my main contention this morning. And the, the question of how dare you is different from the question of how can you. So I'm not aiming to answer the question of how can we go about this mission? What are the means by which we go about this mission? This text answers that. And I suspect we'll get into that in the coming weeks as we talk about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is who enables us for this mission. He gives us the strength to discharge the mission. That's how can we. 
But I want to answer the question that comes before that, which is the question of authority. On what basis do we conduct ourselves on this mission? Not just how can we, but how dare we? And I think the ascension of Jesus is the reason why. I want to walk through the text, and then we want to unpack a little bit of of what it means. So look with me just at the first few verses there. Luke introduces the book to, to Theophilus and explains that this is the account of all that Jesus not only began to do and teach in Luke's gospel until the day he was taken up, but then he gives his transition into the book of Acts, which is implied that, that this is what Jesus is continuing to do and teach, not just what he already did in Luke's gospel, but the book of Acts being now what he continues to do and teach from heaven. So if you remember how the gospel of Luke ends in Luke 24, you don't need to turn there, but Luke 24 verses 46 through 47, he sends them out on mission and Jesus says, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and dies and and rise on the third day and that repentance and forgiveness of sins would be preached to all nations in his name beginning at Jerusalem and of this you are witnesses. So he's already given them their final marching orders and he's explained what the mission is. And then notice verse 3, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So what is this kingdom of God that he talks about? this This is Christianese terminology. We use the kingdom as an adjective that's almost just a complete throwaway, right? We want to have a kingdom impact. We're having a kingdom potluck this afternoon. That's the, that's the way that we use some of these words. It's just a generic Christian adjective. So what is the kingdom of God? I wanted to find that, but first there's a little bit of a clue here. And we get all of these wrong ideas about the kingdom. Either we think that it's all here, all now, or we think that it's all future, and there's nothing in which we participate in it now. But he says he presented himself himself alive to them after his suffering, appearing to them during 40 days. And it's interesting, every time you see 40 in Scripture, it's marking a period of transition. So the spies in the land of Canaan spied it out for 40 days. The people of Israel had to spend 40 years in the wilderness before they could enter that land. Noah spent 40 days and 40 nights on the ark during the the rainfall. There's all of these periods for God's people where 40 days is signaling, either 40 days, 40 years, whatever that number is, but it's, it's signaling that something is about to come. Jesus' ministry began with 40 days of prayer, fasting, and temptation. And so this is signaling when it says that he spoke to them for 40 days about the kingdom of God, that the kingdom of God was about to arrive and manifest itself in a particular way. It was right upon them. See, because when we ask what the kingdom is, we struggle to define it. Is, it. is it a future nation state? Are we talking about just something political that happens with Israel in the future? Maybe. Are we talking about a general ethos, a general approach to the Christian life? Well, what is the kingdom? Well, just love God, love other people, love your neighborhood. Is that the kingdom of God? Is it just another dimension altogether? Is it some 17th dimension floaty place that doesn't touch down into this world? None of these definitions are big enough. They're all too small. And as we define the kingdom, notice what it isn't. So verse 4, while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. 
For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So his first command in light of this kingdom is negative. It's stop. It's wait. It's don't leave. He's saying this to the apostles who were eyewitnesses of the resurrection, of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. They had walked with him for three years. If anyone should have the power to go out on mission immediately, it would be these apostles. And yet he tells them, wait. I think there's times in our own life where we on paper are perfectly qualified to go out and yet we're we're not feeling the capacity the power the energy to do so and in those moments what we need is not a change of location it's not a new setting what we need is a new spirit a fresh empowerment see whatever this kingdom involves and whatever this mission involves it's going to take an otherworldly power for them to discharge it You'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. But what is the kingdom not? Verse 6, when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times and seasons. And then he goes on. John Calvin, in his commentary on this particular verse, said that there's as many errors in the disciples' question as there are words. I think that's pretty accurate. And you can break it up a number of different ways, but there's three errors that I see. One is an error in timing. The second is an error in the nature of the kingdom. And the third is an error in the sequencing. So first, Jesus dismantles this error that they make in the timing of the kingdom. Because they had asked him, will you at this time and Jesus says, it is not for you to know the times or seasons. See, prophetic speculation is not what we're called to do. You don't get to know the ETA of the kingdom or the current speed. So we don't get to know the moment that Christ will return and fully consummate and reveal the kingdom of God. But we also don't get to know the rate of speed at which it's coming to us. There's two words here used for time that encapsulate both of those concepts, both the moment and the season. Calvin also said in his commentary on this that curiosity always arises almost always either of idleness or else of distrust. So when we're overly curious about the events that the future holds, it either arises out of idleness or distrust. Distrust is cured by meditating, he says, on the promises of God. So they're wrong about the timing and they're becoming too speculative. But second, they're also wrong about the nature of this kingdom. Because they mention specifically Israel, which was under subjugation to the Romans. And Jesus says, it's not for you to know that, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you and you will be my witnesses. So what is the nature of this kingdom? It's an evangelistic kingdom. It is spiritual, not geopolitical. That's not to say that it doesn't have effects in the world even on governments, societies, cultures. But it's spiritual. It starts with witness. It starts with the good news of Jesus. It's an evangelistic kingdom. It's not limited to one geopolitical nation. It's not limited to one ethnicity, the Jews or anyone else. You will be my witnesses, he says. So they were wrong about the nature. They thought it was physical. They thought it was merely political. It was spiritual and it transcends any human categories. And third... They're wrong about the sequence. Because Jesus does specify, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, verse 8, and to the ends 
of the earth. See, they were expecting right now, now that Jesus had died and risen, that they would go and they would see the kingdom restored to Israel. And he says, no, all of this has to happen first. See, witness has to come before this final worship moment. There has to be the cross before the crown. There has to be suffering before reward. There's seed time before harvest. There's death before resurrection. See, we want shortcuts. One of the amazing things about this school in Tijuana that I got to experience is that there's so much in missions in particular where we want to trim off the corners wherever possible, and we want to have shortcuts. Why would I learn another culture and language? Why would I put myself all through that for for these students for 10 months, plus whatever training they're going to have in the future for whatever field they serve on? We all want shortcuts. We don't realize often that the kingdom only comes in terms of the cross before the crown. That there's suffering and then there's the reward. There's the blessing on the other side of that. There's no easy way. And then verse 9. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took them out of their sight. This is the ascension. So see this connection here. Verse 3. For 40 days he was talking to them about the kingdom of God. And then verse 9, he ascends. These two things are connected. See, it's not like he was having a a prophetic Bible study over here in verse 3, and then in verse 9 he just happens to wisp away. These aren't unconnected verses. We are to interpret his ascension in verse 9 and following in light of the fact that he was teaching them about the kingdom for those 40 days. What is Jesus doing right now? He's not just watching over the dinosaurs. And as, as, as the music so, so beautifully encapsulated, he's interceding for us as our merciful and faithful and compassionate high priest. He's applying what he did on the cross to us in forgiving our sins and mediating between us and God. That's happening as well, but that's not the only thing. He's not only interceding. He is reigning. Jesus ascended to reign. He rose to rule. And the apostles understood his ascension as an enthronement, as a royal inauguration. And you see this in the very next chapter, in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2, verse 30, at Pentecost. Peter says, being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, Jesus, that he would excuse me, to to David, that he would set one of his descendants, and that's Jesus, on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. So Jesus ascends to this throne. Verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. That's where Jesus says he's not just in heaven twiddling his thumbs, waiting for the right time to return. He's already ruling. I, I have a friend several years ago, who told me that his church had this sort of slogan, this mantra that said, Jesus is our current Savior and our coming Lord. And there's an aspect of that's, that, that, that that's true, but his thought was, you know, maybe we should reverse this. He's also our current Lord and our coming Savior. He's coming to bring salvation at a moment in time in the future, and yet he's reigning and ruling now. 
And then verse 36, you see, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Lord is an office that he occupies. He's been enthroned. He's been put in office. He's not running for election in the world. He's not trying to win a popularity contest. So what is the kingdom? I just want to propose a a brief definition here and then speed through a few passages of scripture that will give support to this. And then want to offer some reflections, some implications on how this affects our mission. The current reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the definition of the kingdom that I want to put forward. The current reign of the Lord Jesus Christ over all creation. Promised in the Old Testament. Present in the church. And progressed through the gospel. Promised in the Old Testament. Present in the church. Progressed through the gospel. So first... Turn with me to Psalm chapter 2, and I want to look through a few texts here to see first that the kingdom of God is promised in the Old Testament, that this current reign of Jesus from heaven is something that the whole Old Testament is anticipating. I don't know if you remember in Acts chapter 4, when the apostles experienced persecution and resistance for the first time, and they get together and they have a Bible study, and it says that the whole place was, was shaken as they prayed for boldness, but Do you remember what passage of scripture they prayed in that prayer meeting? What was the basis of their prayer? It was from Psalm chapter 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed or against his Christ, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords from us. So you have kings plotting against Christ. We see that in the crucifixion. And yet he who sits in the heavens laughs, verse 4, and the Lord holds them in derision. He will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Jesus has been seated in heaven. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Then verse 8, Ask of me. This is the father speaking to the son. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. And it goes on from there, and it calls the kings of the nations to repent and acknowledge Christ. But that statement right there, theologian many years ago made the comment, when the Father says, ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession, do you really think Jesus forgot to ask? He didn't. Upon ascending into heaven, we have every reason to believe that Jesus made this request of the Father, that he took the Father up on his offer to receive authority over all the nations. Isaiah 9. Isaiah 9, this is a text that's familiar to us around the holidays. We're going to be diving in soon, but it speaks to us far beyond just the context of Christmas. Verse 6, for to us a child is born... To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Father of Eternity, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The authority, the reign of Jesus is anticipated in the Old Testament. And notice, 
Jesus doesn't just rule over your heart. He doesn't just rule over your private little meeting. The government shall be upon his shoulder. He rules the world. Turn a page to Isaiah 11. In the first several verses there, you see a similar thing. You see this prediction that in verse 1, there would come forth from a shoot, a shoot from the stump of Jesse. A branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Notice the same Holy Spirit that Jesus pours out on his people immediately after ascending. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and might. The Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes with what his ears hear. But with righteousness shall he judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness be the belt of his loins. This is Jesus in his kingly duties. This is how he judges the world. This is how he judges peoples. This is how he rules over the church. This is how he rules the world. And this is predicted in the Old Testament. The kingdom of God promised in the Old Testament and present in the New Testament as well. Now I want us to think hard here about how the New Testament takes these promises and applies them in the first century and the events of Jesus coming. Turn to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26, and this is Jesus on trial before Caiaphas. There's all sorts of mentions of the kingdom of God and what that means throughout the ministry of Jesus, and we don't have time to survey all of those. But I want you to see this statement right here. And remember what happens in Acts chapter 1. He's preaching them about the kingdom for 40 days. They say, are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel now? He says, no, it's not for you to know the time, but go and be my witnesses. And then he ascends up into heaven through a cloud, right? A cloud takes them out of his sight. And that's significant. Verse 63, Matthew 26, verse 63 The high priest said to him, Jesus, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. How dare you, Jesus? Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So usually when we read the words Jesus coming together, we assume it's about the second coming. And that's often true. But he says, from now on, you'll see him coming on the clouds of heaven. See, that's his coming into heaven. That's his arrival into heaven. And what Jesus is doing here is directly quoting Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given a dominion and a glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And Jesus is applying this to himself in his ascension. He's the Son of Man who approaches the Father and receives this kingdom. The kingdom of God is present in the ministry of Christ. And you also see that in the Great Commission, Matthew 28. All authority on heaven, in heaven and on earth have been given to me, has been given to me. 
Therefore go and make disciples of all nations. See, we usually start it in verse 19 of Matthew 28 there. We start with the imperative to go. But that's not where Jesus starts. He starts by saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Not will be given to me. Or not may be given to me if you invite me into your heart. It has been given to him. The kingdom of God, the current reign of Jesus over all creation, is promised in the New Testament. It's present now in the church. And you see glimpses of that in what Jesus says in his earthly ministry. And then it's progressive. And it's progressed through the gospel. Two more quick passages here. Psalm 110. I would be willing to contend that Psalm 110 is the favorite psalm of the apostles and possibly God's favorite psalm because it is the most frequently quoted in the New Testament. Not Isaiah 53, not any of the other passages that you would think, but these are the most frequently cited words from the Old Testament contained in the New Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord, your Bible might have all caps there, Yahweh says to my Lord, standard capitalization, Adonai, my Lord, my master. Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is the Father's mandate to the Son. Hey, come here, sit on my throne with me, sit at my right hand, rule here until when? What's taking Jesus so long to return? What is he waiting for? Doesn't he see what we're going through? Sit here until I make your enemies your footstool. If you know your Bible, you know Romans 5. Who are God's enemies? Well, at one point, it was us. We were enemies of God, and we've been brought under his feet and made into his friends. How does the New Testament deal with this passage? 1 Corinthians 15 is a great example. And it's talking about Christ's return and what's taking him so long. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 24. Then comes the end. So this is the end of human history. When he, Jesus, delivers the kingdom of God, the current kingdom of God, to the Father after having destroyed every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Sound familiar? The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. And the apostle goes on from there. The kingdom of God is progressed through the preaching of the gospel as enemies People who are under the wrath of God are turned into friends as they're brought in willing, loving submission to the rule and reign of Christ. He's reigning in heaven until all of his enemies are put under his feet. Whether it's the principalities and powers that are holding the unreached people groups of the world in subjugation to demons and to false ideologies and religions, or whether it's just us who are enemies in our own hearts and minds in hostility towards God, until the gospel changes our hearts. Jesus is defeating all of them. So the kingdom of God is promised in the Old Testament, present in the church, and progressed through the gospel. Three implications for us. And the first is 
obedience. Jesus gave the apostles that command to sit and wait in Jerusalem and then to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then they would go out. Not just Jerusalem, but Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. Well, we live on the other side of those events now. Here we are. This is the ends of the earth relative to where Jesus was when he spoke those words in the book of Acts. And the mission continues. The Holy Spirit has been outpoured on us. Jesus, as his first act after his inauguration, poured out this gift on his people so that they would have the power to go and proclaim this kingdom. And so we should continue to obey that mandate. Sometimes that's waiting for empowerment. Very often it's going or sending or helping others go or going into your neighborhood and your home, discipling your children to live under the lordship of Jesus Christ. We obey. If Jesus has received all authority in heaven and on earth already, and he's not waiting for some future event to receive that authority, but he already has that authority, then we have to obey this mission. But the second implication is for our own boldness. It's for us to be without hindrance as we speak the gospel. Because the way that we talk about the gospel reveals what we believe about evangelism. We use these euphemisms. We use these metaphors. We talk about sharing the gospel. We talk about building relationships. All, all things that are good. All things that are valid. But, but they're conspicuously missing from the New Testament. What do you see in the New Testament? You see proclamation. You see preaching. You see people being called to repent. In Acts chapter 17, Paul says to the people at the Areopagus that God commands everyone everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world through a man that he's appointed. And he's given proof of this by raising that man from the dead. That's not the way that we speak about the gospel. We talk about having evangelistic conversations and having dialogues and, and we, we want to suggest and recommend to people that they try Jesus. But the implication of the fact that Jesus is King of Kings, is Lord of Lords, is that we not only share, we not only converse, but we also call, we command, we preach. We let people know on behalf of God. God tells you to repent and believe in this Christ. It's a command. There's, there's an evangelist that I follow, and he, uh, he's, he's noted for some of his direct tactics. And people will sometimes question him on some of these tactics. And they'll say, out of all the people that you've shared the gospel with, how many of them have come to Christ? This guy's out there debating atheists, people that are hardened, embittered, and his retort, which I love, is, well, all of them. I bring all of them to Christ. What he means by it, and he explains it, I bring them all to the feet of Christ. Now, what they do with him there is up to them. And whatever Christ does with them there is up to him. They can choose to receive him, embrace him. They can walk away. Jesus can draw them to himself or not. But everyone that he speaks to, he leads them to Christ. You hear the difference? We can't control people's conversion. We can't control how they respond to the gospel. But we can lead them to the Lord who calls them to repentance 
and faith. We can bring them to that point where they're face-to-face with the Lord, where they're humbled under his lordship. And the third implication, finally, is just endurance. I don't know if you've noticed, but this kingdom that we see beginning with the ascension and enthronement of Christ in Acts chapter 1 has been going a while, and Jesus hasn't returned yet to bring it to its consummation, to its fullness. 1 Corinthians 15, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Well, that means that there's a lot of other enemies left to be defeated in the world until death is removed and we taste the new creation and the new heavens and new earth. It takes patience and it takes endurance and it takes perseverance. But if Jesus is ascended so that he can put all of his enemies under his feet, so that he can save all of his people that he chooses to draw to himself, so that he can defeat and put to open shame the principalities and powers that hold the nations under their sway. If he's doing that, then we can have perfect patience while we endure, while we're marginalized, while we're ignored by friends and family members. Because someday, Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Father, as we conclude our time together and as we head into the table, we pray that you would give us a joyful recognition of your current rule and reign. Lord, it's no coincidence that Luke begins and ends his book of Acts with mention of the kingdom. And it's because that is what you are doing now that you are in heaven, Lord Jesus. You are reigning. You are ruling. You are king. And we thank you, God, that you are a victorious king that changes hearts, that saves peoples, that disciples nations, and that you are a merciful king who died for his people. And so we recognize that and commemorate that now in this time. In Jesus' name, amen.